when you're in the UFC, you have the luxury of having a lot more time. Prior to getting into the UFC, you're taking fights at short notice. You're having opponents pull out. It's a lot more unpredictable. It's a lot less stable. So this is where you start to develop sort of agile approaches. And, and what I started doing was, right, if we can um, establish good training residuals, and I think that, that, that having high levels of isometric and eccentric strength are really important for um, combat athletes because it helps build their robustness. Um, and what we do is we spike um, eccentric and isometric strength semi-regularly with super maximal methods, sort of uh, quite intensive, very low volume um, stresses that would then uh, allow us to, to then, if we do get that demand for a fight, we can then peak almost immediately. I'm your host as always, Todd Davidson, and on episode 46 of the Platform to Perform podcast, I was delighted to be joined by Will Wayland. Will is the co-owner of Powering Through, his strength and conditioning facility that provides both coaching and consultancy services to MMA fighters, professional boxers, and professional golfers. In today's podcast, I was keen for us to unpick the similarities and differences between uh, these groups of athletes, as myself and Will discussed, rotational and ballistic work for golfers and mixed martial artists, the concept of reels versus feels, and how to separate how movement feels versus performance indicators of the movement itself, the concept of training residuals, super maximal eccentric training, and why this makes year-round training even more important for golfers and mixed martial artists. If you want to check out Will's work, then head over to simplyfaster.com to read up on the articles that were mentioned in this podcast, all of which will be in the show notes. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll catch you on the other side. How are you doing today, Will? I'm, I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm very well. I'm very well. Um, we'll kick things off with uh, the same question that I kick it off with everyone, and that is, uh, why do you do what you do? <laughs> uh, that's a good question. That's better than, than uh, the question of, um, you know, tell us about yourself, because I, I, I hate being given that question over and over again, because um, after you've introduced yourself once, uh, you know, that's, that's enough. But anyway, um, yeah, uh, the, basically uh, facilitate um, education. I'm of the opinion that coaches are teachers. And uh, one thing we're trying to do is teach, if it be strength and conditioning, if it be sport, what we're looking for at the end of the day is developing, uh, you know, competency and uh, and facilitating change that that uh, hopefully leads to performance gain at some point down the road. Uh, but the big thing is 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 teaching teaching competency and uh, just teaching in general. And uh, just to, <laughs> I'm going to segue already. Um, one of your articles I was reading in the week that I really enjoyed. Uh, was talking about keeping athletes adaptable and it makes sense given the current climate we're in um, yeah. that you said it's sort of no point if the athletes don't know how to adapt their programs or their sessions themselves. So uh, how do you go about doing that? So um, occasionally, you know, you'll, you'll because athletes um, are, are creatures of habit and, and, the athlete lifestyle, there's a comfort in it for many of them because it's a monotonous, um, predictable uh, life, you know, for a lot of athletes. It's the same thing week in, week out, and, and um, the security in that. And a lot of people would like that. They like feeling safe. They like feeling secure. They know what's coming over the hill. Uh, there's a predictability to, to, to that way of doing things. 
And um, what I discuss is, is, especially with a lot of the athletes I work with who travel an awful lot, they're constantly throwing curveballs and having, in terms of having to adapt um, their training program very, very regularly. Uh, and uh, some people can't handle it and they just throw up their hands and walk away. And what I'm, you know, part of my job is to build resiliency into these guys so that if a curveball is thrown at them, they can adapt and uh, make the necessary changes they, they need to their programming or their lifestyle or whatever. You know, um, COVID's been the biggest spanner in the works I think you could ever, ever hope to see. And a lot of guys have had to adapt, you know, um, turning living rooms into gyms, out, outdoor spaces into gyms, buying what gym equipment they can and then trying to work based on, on what they've got around them, you know? Um, and, and for some, it was easy because they, they're obviously sort of mentally very uh, flexible, whereas other people, you know, find it very, very tough. For instance, I know a few people in the powerlifting community who found it incredibly tough because suddenly their, their weapon of choice was taken away from them and they're, and they're scrambling to adapt, you know? And, and the part of uh, the few powerlifting community we have at our facility, uh, part of their education has been learning to handle you know, training and not worrying so much about, about um, you know, loss of strength because you sort of remind them that, that, that uh, you know, fundamentally it's pretty easy got back provided they're, they're sort of, they were competent in the first place, you know. Um, it's the gen pop people that train in our facility are the ones that are sort of reeling because uh, I know some of them haven't done anything uh, during lockdown. So it's going to be harder for them to reestablish themselves once they come back, you know, nine months of nothing. But hey, um, you know, if they've done some training before, it's not so bad. Yeah, it's ironic because, um, again, I feel massively for gym owners and uh, desperate to get back to the gym myself. But it's funny on that, um, not to criticise general population, um, but when they're like, oh, yeah, gyms are currently shut here in the UK. And uh, it's almost like, oh, what, what do we do? It's like there are other choices that don't involve going to a gym. Um, exactly. I'd, I'd much prefer to be there as well. Um, so you work with people pretty much well, from the outside looking in on opposite ends of the spectrum in golf and professional boxing, mixed martial arts. Uh, how on earth do you fall into that? Yeah, so um, I, I frequently joke that if you're an athlete that doesn't have to run, I'm your, I'm your guy. You know, if you want to hit people really hard or hit things really hard, um, I'm probably, probably useful to have. Uh, whereas like you want to learn front side mechanics, don't come to me. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a sprint guy. Um, you know, so, uh, that's, that's kind of how I've wound up in this niche of working with basically, uh, I guess, rotational power athletes for about lack of a better term. So I, I, I probably plonk, uh, combat athletes in that, that as well. Um, and yeah, it's just, just fortuitous that a lot of the stuff, cause I worked with MMA first and then a lot of the stuff I'd learned in MMA transferred pretty well uh into golf strength and conditioning as well so um the two things kind of work together together pretty well um you know and uh it's 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 thus far it's been a pretty good sort of but slightly strange path for me um so yeah and in terms of uh assessing rotational athletes whether it's an MA guy a golf golf chap um what does that assessment process look like for you so everything, everything starts with their relationship with the, with the ground. Um, it's very important that we assess their ability to produce force and both their ability to produce force very rapidly. So the two tests we use for both, uh, sort of fundamental strength and conditioning tests of isometric mid-thigh pull, counter-movement jump, counter-movement jump impulse. And um, those both look the same for, for MMA fighters and for, for 
uh, the golfers and you know the UFC PI use the use the mid thigh pull. Uh, they use map counter movement jumping pulse. We at the European Tour Performance Institute use mid thigh pull and counter movement jump impulse because these are measures of of, of general athleticism. Um, and you know we know that that MMA fighters benefit from improved low body strength. We know that golfers benefit from improved low body strength. So those are the commonalities, and I guess this is why I'm able to work with both sets of athletes without too much trouble. And with your um, just touching on uh, the golf side of things for a second, um, I remember listening to an Eric Cressy podcast where um, he cited a bit of research that showed that some of his baseball guys had really poor correlations between stuff like a counter movement jump and uh, a rotational uh, power. So, for example, I don't know, a rotational hop, rotational med ball throw. Um, mm -hmm. Do you think there's any or what do you hypothesize as being the reasons why some guys benefit massively from just building up general strength and power in the sagittal plane and other guys it doesn't seem to transfer so well again i appreciate that's a huge generalization yeah um um the the golf would be contrary all the all the research we've got all the all the evidence we've got and obviously there's always going to be outliers of course but but the the, the study we did with challenge tour players and a lot of the the the, the evidence shows that that um low body strength has strong correlation to club head speed and ball speed um you know 0.8 uh, confidence and um you know which is pretty damn good uh and um thus far pretty much every golfer i've made stronger um you know in the low body their ball speed and club head speed improve in some degree not saying every every, every you know massive improvements for everyone but we always generally see general improvements and this is because as a population, golfers are generally more undertrained than, say, your typical pro baseball player. And this is, this is why golfers always seem to make gains when we perform almost very basic strength and conditioning interventions. Um, with high-level baseball guys, you know, I, I can't speak to what Eric Cressy's been doing, but you might be scraping the barrel there. It might be that their low body strength is, is already pretty good and they're not going to get much more out of getting stronger. Um, without seeing the the, the information, I, I can't say, but that's what we see in golf. So all the evidence suggests that low body strength is a strong correlate to to, to club head speed and ball speed. And what are some of the um, mistakes that you see when it comes to um, golf, the golf population's view on strength and conditioning? <laughs> um, so golf has been pulled cricket, kicking and screaming into the into the twenty first uh, century um, because uh, because it's Golf at its core is a culture. You got to remember that golf is different to a lot of other sports. Uh, a lot of people play golf as a recreational game. So the, 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 the distance between recreational golfers and the professional golfers as, as a population, they don't see the difference is, is, is uh, that, that enormous. Um, and there's this dissonance among high level amateur players uh, that, 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 that um, you know, they just need to practice more golf to get to the professional level. Um, but what we're seeing now, particularly with the whole distance argument in golf, which is causing a lot of consternation, because suddenly distances have gotten a little bit, not, not in real terms, they've not actually gotten that much longer, but there are a few players who are, who are very good outliers who are hitting it a lot further than everybody else and, and also winning. Um, and yeah, it's just this, this, this odd situation that, that um, there's an unwillingness to accept that perhaps being physical and being strong may be a part of that equation. Um, you know, and, and it's, it's interesting because um, the technical primacy in golf is, is, is so important. 
um, that uh, it's almost as if nothing else matters. So, uh, but, but now the opinions are changing. Well, what happens when everybody achieves a high level of technical expertise? Well, there's, a, there's an exploitable there and that exploitable is physicality. And, that, and, you know, and, and now guys like Bryson DeChambeau, have, wait, wait a minute, there's, there's, there's space here to grow and they're exploiting those opportunities and getting stronger, getting heavier, you know, gaining body mass and, and, and it's making a difference. Um, it's making a difference. And we know that, that strength and, and body mass, are, again, good correlates to, to clubhead speed and bull speed. We, we saw the same thing, sure, in martial arts years ago. Uh, I, I see it in the Brazilian jiu-jitsu community. You know, I've been doing Brazilian jiu-jitsu for 10 years. And, and I remember starting out a lot of the diehard old school Brazilian jiu-jitsu guys were like, oh, you know, jiu-jitsu is about technique and, 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 and overcoming the stronger, bigger opponent. You know, you look at the lineup at the ADCC, which is like the world championship of submission grappling. These guys are all jacked out of their minds, you know. And so you can't say that being physical and strong doesn't have some sort of performance impact. You know, when everybody's really, really good, um, you know, particularly in a sport like submission grappling, um, being that little bit stronger than your opponent might make all the difference, you know. But, but in golf, obviously, it's still a super technical, tactical sport. But being stronger, being more physical gives you extra tactical options because you know you instead of taking two shots you can try and take that one shot it might be risky but if you're further further along the green then then you're winning you know i think it was a um a conference i attended with uh sophia nymphius who's basically a change of direction um keynote speaker in the strength and conditioning world and she was talking about um physical qualities versus technical qualities in the skill of change of direction and she's like ultimately yet strength is important um, and obviously technique's important, but you can't use strength that you don't have. Um, and I am kind of think it's kind of the same with golf in the sense of we're not saying that the power lifter is the person with the biggest drive, um, but equally, you know, if you've got no strength, then you're probably going to break at some point. Yeah. And, and the thing is, I've said before that the, the part of the problem is, is golfers have always put the, when it comes to embracing strength and conditioning, um, they took, they take the, they, they grab specificity with both hands and think that all, everything has to be geared towards specific outcomes without respecting general physicality and the second order, third order uh, benefits this stuff brings. They don't see that stuff. They want it to, to have an immediate performance outcome. And what happens is it, it ends up having no performance outcome because a lot of these guys are giving special methods, special exercises, but they're not objectively measuring outcomes. And then what you end up with is, is, is you know, stuff on BOSU balls, you know, specific looking drills with cable machines. You can always spot the golfer in the gym. You know, um, you Google or, or, or look up a hashtag of golf fitness, you're in for a fun time because there's some interesting interpretations of what specificity for those guys uh, should be. And um, yeah, and there's, I think I'm on the part of the golf coach and I think the TPI might, you know, I don't know if you've heard of this organization, but they, they have a huge amount of influence on golf fitness and what that looks like. And for the longest time, we were seeing guys hanging out on the FMS screen and TPI screen and, and using that uh, corrections within that. And I think a lot of, perhaps not TPI's original intention, but people were using that as a, well, here, here's the means to improve um, physicality for golf. And, I, you know, and now we're seeing a sort of a shift. More guys are now interested in conventional barbell training. But again, because they've started ass backwards, um, they're trying to learn fundamentals, um, you know, quite late on. So it, 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 it's harder, say, rather than, you know, doing your typical long-term athletic development, 
picking up all the basics in your late teenage years and early 20s and then you know cruising throughout your, your 20s and 30s what we're doing now is we're teaching 30 year olds you know sometimes older the basics of of, of, of uh, strength and conditioning interventions you know yeah, but we've got a good situation in england for instance golf is going to be interesting in the next 10 years because all the juniors all the guys in the england regional squad all the guys in part of england golf uh, are all mastering those basics now so so golf will be in an interesting place whereas before there was never any interest in that type of stuff but what's happening is ngbs are driving the change um some ngbs are better than others but uh, yeah the ngbs are driving the change in golf when it comes to embracing strength and conditioning and just to touch upon a couple of things you mentioned there, um, because transfer training specificity is uh, a topic that really gets my juices going. Um, but just for the listeners, could you explain what you mean by second order effects and third order effects? Sure. So um, let's let's use an example. Let's take one people should know uh, the back squat. So what's the primary function of the back squat to increase uh, weight on the bar, right? If I'm powerlifter, or if my, my my main focus is getting stronger, the weight goes up. So the interpretation here is that I'm stronger. Um, that's fine, but there are benefits to doing this that that are perhaps more implicit and less explicit. Um, and these range from well, if I'm stronger, I'm potentially more robust. I can I can uh, tolerate more stress. I can tolerate more load. In, in other activities potentially, which is why, for instance, um, you know, and, and I, people hate the studies, but there's great evidence by, by uh, you know, Gregory Haff and guys like that showing that, that, and this is the number everyone dislikes. For some reason, double body weight back squat seems to exist as a number that suggests that if people achieve that, they're injured less. Now there's a lot of, there's a lot in that mix, but that would be a second order benefit. Uh, third order benefit would be something very peripheral uh, for instance, I don't know, um, back squatting, um, because let's say if I get good at doing heavy singles, there's an intensity and an intent that comes with that, that perhaps then can proliferate into other aspects of my life, you know, and, and that would be a third or even fourth, uh, fourth order benefit stuff that's, that's, you know, not really the aim of training, but it's something that comes as a, as a benefit of training. Mental well-being, for instance, a lot of people pay lip service to mental health. Well, you know, you know what, doing a heavy back squat, uh, and getting a new PR or something, I walk out of the gym and I'm the, I'm the boss. You know, I feel really, really good about myself. Well, that's, that's not the stated aim of training. That's, that's, you know, that's not what I'm there to do, but I feel good as a result of that. So that would be a, a, you know, a, a, a tertiary benefit that's perhaps not, you know, not the stated aim of, of just getting stronger, putting more weight on the bar, right? So this is what we mean by, by you know, second and third order benefits or effects. Yeah, and I... It's funny because I was speaking to um, a previous podcast, uh, Jeffrey Chu, last night about just making sure I had in my head the terminology you were using and some terminology that um, I've been using. But I was thinking when you get to a point where, and again, you mentioned the two times bodyweight back squat. Another thing that strength and conditioning coaches love talking about is uh, being quote unquote strong enough. And in my head, I was thinking, right, when you are whatever that strong enough figure is, does it then get relegated to something like, I don't know, a confidence booster or, yeah. I don't know, just uh, psychologically getting the athlete in the right place. Um, you also mentioned um, the FMS screens and the, the TPI screens. Um, what What is your general opinion on those for <laughs> golf? And if you're not a fan, then what would you suggest as an alternative? So you got to remember this. Um, I've, I came to golf as an outsider. 
Um, and I came from, from a combat sport. So I looked around at the golf landscape. You know, I did my due diligence when I got started in, with, with golf. And I looked at what, the, what everybody else was doing, what the thinking is, what the rationale is behind that stuff. And I guess the biggest problem with the TPI stuff is this. Um, they make a lot of bold statements. But they do not evidence their statements past anecdotes or N1 outcomes. They're not really ha willing to have their, 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 the outcomes of their approach uh, put under a microscope. Now, because they're kind of adjacent with the FMS stuff, um, there's a study just this last week, I think, uh, that showed that, that um, FMS scores, again, aren't particularly great predictors. And that if people know the tests, they can cheat the test which was the study I think from this week that came out. So that questions the um, relevance of, of that type of testing. So um, what I kind of do now is I implicitly screen my guys through via warm up and watching tape and movement. So I guess the job of coaching, <laughs> believe it or not, without having a, a handy screen um, to use as reference, what we go back to is a more organic sort of a mental model of like using heuristics and um, something a lot more personal, a lot more flexible. Um, we have a screen we use at our gym, but it's a general physical assessment. We don't sell it as a, as a golf assessment, you know, and, and that's where our physios do a once over on everyone and make sure that sort of everything moves well. Um, you know, but we, we, we again, we, we, we give it enough plasticity that we can mold it to around the individual. So we're not shackled by strict, um, you know, criteria. And, and we found that that sort of, you know, slightly looser model works better than, than having strict screens. For instance, I've had guys who are playing on the European tour, some of the best golfers in the world with club head speeds of sort of 130 mile per hour plus. They're failing, FM, they're failing TPI screens, but these guys are performing at the highest level. Now, the implication from TPI is that, that, that if they were to master the, you know, get better at the test of the screen, their golf would somehow improve. Um, that's the implication. They don't say that, they don't say that uh, explicitly, but that's what they, they've always implied. And I guess this is part of the problem with this stuff is, is the, the, the lack of objective measures. If you believe in your method, open it up, let people test it, let them do the research on it, or do your own research, you know, either negative or positive, and, and, and be open about it. But if, if, if you're trying to sell something, however, you don't, you, you know, you don't play, you don't show your hand um, because the, you know, I'm guessing I'm implying now that perhaps they don't actually believe in their outcomes. You know, if you, if you're open and transparent and want to sell more, you get it verified. And then if the evidence backs you up, you probably sell more of your screens and programs and, and, and um, courses, you know what I'm saying? And then on the flip side, when you realise that um, all of a sudden what you were anecdotally promising doesn't deliver, it could be disastrous. Well, this, 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 is, the, this is the risk, right? You know, this is the risk. And this is why um, golf for a long time, particularly from a physical training standpoint, was not being objective enough, which is why, you know, the, the guys who, who came ahead of me at the European uh, Tour Performance Institute, they said, right, we need to mid-side pull and we need to counter movement jump impulse do some rotational testing and objective neck, neck testing that has existed in sports for decades and bring it to golf. So we actually know that our interventions are making a difference. And now because more guys are interested in clubhead speed and ball speed, I'm picking up clients because 
the, you know, I said, right, what's your club here to call his speed, ball speed, you know, and don't get me wrong, I'm a private S&C coach. So I am trying to beat my competition. I want people to train with me and not with other people. Now, I'm not the type of guy to throw other people's coaches under the bus. But what I will say is, right, you've been with this guy for two years, your club head speed is, is what? And they'll, they'll give me a number. I go, right, the two, three years you've been training with this person, has it improved? And they're like, no. And it's like, well, how can you be sure the intervention you were doing was making any meaningful performance impact? You know, and, and, and it's, a t it's a hard question. And a lot of these guys scratch their heads and they're like, oh, bollocks, I might have wasted three years of training, you know, not making any real, real headway. You know, yeah, don't get me wrong. If you're less injured, that's also good, you know. Um, but, you know, in terms of like objective performance impacts, you know, you've got to be honest with yourself. And this is where golfers differ from other athletes, I guess. Perhaps MMA fighters are the same. But they're fiercely loyal um, to, to the coaches around them and they aren't willing to make staff changes when needed. Because you've got to remember each, each golfer is basically his own, to some extent, acts as his own performance manager. And, and um, he's responsible for picking and choosing the people around him. You know, which is funny because, you know, they'll stay loyal to a physio or a golf coach or an SNC coach for, or a golf fitness coach for a very long time. But they'll, 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 they'll drop and pick up caddies you know, on the, on the day. So they'll, uh, you know, they fire them on the, on the first hole, you know, um, which is, which is why it always strikes me as funny, you know, because they're so willing to turn over caddies, but they're unwilling to, to sort of rearrange the, the other backroom stuff. Yeah. And uh, just in, well, just, just in listening to you speak there, I was just thinking about, um, well, as you said, people who don't measure performance. Do you think there's another, this is something I wanted to talk about later on in the podcast, um, but seems like an appropriate segue do you think that's a classic case of um reels versus feels like oh i feel like i'm performing better it's like yes but are you yeah the the actually the golf world hangs out on this terminology an awful lot that the, the feel doesn't equal real and, and and so on and they love they love the feel the talk of it because quite often i guess with the the execution of the golf swing sometimes it feels odd but the swing is, is really really good and then there's talk about when feel and real come together and, and all this stuff. And it's just like very nebulous relative coaching terminology. And it's like, well, you know, you have to ask them, well, well what do you mean? Um, what, you know, are you, are you being, again, are you being objective? Because if you can get the objective measures to line up with the subjective feel of how everything's occurring, then you're onto a winner, I guess. And that's the, that's the, the trick is if you can get those things to conjoin and and come together then 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 you then you're good you know um you know I, and i guess it's it's also having faith in in um objective perform regular objective performance testing and i think that's what golf for a large part is lacking it's changing now um now more guys are interested in club head speed and ball head uh, ball speed man uh, measures a lot of them taking uh track mans and other measuring tools with them so they can keep constantly measuring their club head speed um, throughout the, the, the season. And we've done, we've done a lot of that as well, just measuring uh, objective golf performance. Because at the end of the day, that's the thing that matters most. What is, what's your club head speed? What's your ball speed? We'll do it with a different number of clubs and just keep those measures um, uh, you know, ticking along over the course of a year and, and feed into what we think might improve or, or help maintain uh, those scores. Do you ever have, um, in terms of club head speed, obviously if they're under for example, depending on the stage of the season, if they're under a lot of training stress, then, and depending where they are in their golf season, 
is there ever a point where, for example, it goes down and you've got to educate them and say, look, this isn't going down longer term? Or, for example, is it a case of if it goes down, this is shit, what the hell have we been doing? Yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, yeah, they go down all the time. Uh, it's, it's like trying to, um, I always liken it to when, when you put your foot on the accelerator and you go flat out and the needle, uh, you know, goes to 100 miles an hour or whatever. Uh, and it, it, it's, um, it doesn't stay there, right? It flutters. And if you're hitting peak performance and maintaining, uh, you know, um, a good in-season training regimen, you'll see that natural fluctuation in your club head speed because um, it's quite sensitive to, to, to neural fatigue is the other thing we've found. Um, and then over the course of the season, because the season's quite rigorous and don't, people don't appreciate this in golf. Um, for instance, I've got, we, we measure their body weight and their club head speed over the course of a season. Um, I've had guys lose, you know, like four to five kilos over, over a season because generally they're traveling a lot and the food is bad. Um, and their club head speed will drop um, subsequently as well. We'll often see losses of up to, to five, even up to 10 miles per hour over the course of a really long season. Um, and it's because, you know, it's, it's, it's hard work. Uh, disruptive sleep schedules, um, you know, inconsistent training, um, all that type of stuff basically starts to bleed the athlete a little bit as they, as they, as they um, progress through the course of the season, which is why if you're amateur or sort of middle level golfer, you'll play every event you've got available to you. When you're at the very highest level, you have the luxury of kind of choosing a little bit of what events you want to do. And you can take weeks off to try and recover and rebuild. Um, and then the other time we see club it's be kind of drop is when we do our off season intervention, quite often during the heaviest training cycles, particularly if I'm using a lot of eccentric or isometric stimulus, we'll see a drop in club head speed. And, and that's just because of, of, of general fatigue and, and very high levels of allostatic stress or whatever. So, um, but then what we see is a subsequent super compensation and the club head speed uh, comes back up higher, hopefully, if we've done everything right. And without revealing all of your secrets, um, so you mentioned about your big hitters manual with uh, Terence Colonel. So if yep. carpet speed is really sensitive to fatigue, then what mm -hmm. might a sort of, I suppose, a weekly template or a weekly overview look like for a golfer trying to improve this then? Yeah, so, so in, the, in that manual, uh, we outline like a, three day, a basic three-day week strength plan um you know with, with with plenty of med ball work um and a, a lot of fundamentals really because the big hitters manual was aimed at um sort of college age or high school age athletes it's kind of a more of a of an introductory to sort of a general well-rounded strength training routine and most of the time we encourage people to measure their club head speed as often as possible because it's aimed at the sort of lower level guys they maybe don't have as much access but thus far Everyone that's gone in measured their club head speed before they started that program. And it's only an eight, eight week intervention. Um, they come out the other side and have usually gained a couple of mile per hour more. And again, going back to what I said earlier, this is generally because mo most golfers are pretty well, are, you know, are pretty under trained. So at that point, you know, any well-rounded, sensible intervention is going to make a little bit of difference. And uh, so are they doing the in terms of measuring their club head speed and mm -hmm. in terms of for example three days a week that's just three days a week presumably separate days with just a bit of strength stuff bit of power stuff and uh nothing yeah too complicated 
No, so the, 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 the way we've organized it is initially the first four weeks are more force oriented and then the back four weeks are more power oriented. And, and that's largely an issue of just basically, because again, this program is aimed at lower level guys, is basically just lightening the load a little bit and focusing more on intent based focus. And then the med ball work shifts from say extensive med ball work to more intensive med ball work. Um, which is probably the number one question I get about that that manual is what is what do you mean extensive versus intensive medical work? So there's a bit of a glossary at the end where we explain what that is, and basically it means um, you know higher higher volumes for higher you know for 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 for, for um, sort of moderate effort, and then intensive is you know very high output but very very low volumes. Um, so for instance, it, this, this, as simply as I can put it, let's say. Um, you know, sort of sets of 10 of med ball throws with a, with a ball that, that bounces back off the wall so you can get high turnover. And then perhaps uh, the, the back four weeks a med ball throw where you're doing um, something, um, you know, intensive, either a single med ball throw very hard against the wall, as hard as you possibly can, um, you know, resting a moment, picking it up, do it again. You know, so that's the difference between the two. Very, we are very, very basically put. But yeah, a lot of people would get confused between extensive and intensive drills. You know, intensive drills are all about low volume, high output. Extensive drills are sort of moderate output, quite high volume. Um, and yeah, so that that that's uh, how that works. So you'd almost want. I mean, if you've got a choice, you're using your to be really really pernickety using med balls in the extensive phase, but then maybe as an example, slam balls in the intensive phase just by nature that you're going to have to pick the thing up and yes yeah yeah, yeah yeah that's actually the difference we do we do use so we'll use our um lighter rubber airfield medals for for the extensive work and then we use the the slam balls the ones filled with sand or whatever or even bean bags work pretty well uh for the for the intent for the intensive stuff um and it's just getting athletes and that's the biggest thing with golfers i think and with the fighters too is is with with your intensive work is to get them to put you know and use this that first part of that word intent maximum intent into every single throw um do not half ass it and you know this is one thing i sort of saw in you know boxing is a great example of sort of half ass med ball work done for very high volumes and very high reps um and and you know when every time i've worked with a boxer or a striker you know we've seen improvements merely from switching that up and and going right we're not going to do tons and tons and tons of, of, of high rep med ball work we're going to do intensive high quality med ball throws where we focus on you trying to throw that thing as hard as you can and we see improvements from from just that that simple switch yeah boxing is definitely one of those sports that um just culturally loves to i mean i call it the sort of middleman of conditioning like the the work is it's hard but it's not maximal and it's like well there's too much recovery cost here but we're not really raising the ceiling much. Yeah, I, there's a saying I use that uh, medium is the highway to mediocrity. So, uh, you know, it's, uh, it, it's just, I see a lot of that. And I'm like, you're, you're basically handicapping guys. It's like you're, 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 you're um, clipping their wind, so to speak, from a force expression standpoint, because you're just giving them a bunch of middle ground, nothing uh, work. It's a grind and it kind of sucks. Um, you know, and, and I think it, it, it perhaps uh, hobbles a lot of potential athletes who could be hitting harder, could be being more powerful, you know, um, but you, you've, you've switched it up, you know, the, the, in an effort to fatigue them quite often under the guise of, of building mental toughness or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's a whole different rabbit hole in itself, but like you said, I mean, <laughs> it's, it's a con it's, 
it's something that I've uh, done video content about in terms of like a boxer might say, oh, you know, what's a good circuit? And you're like, right, how far back do I have to strip this before uh, you actually get a solid concrete answer? It's like, what are med balls mm. good for? And you're like, well, <laughs> it depends, but the way you're using them, probably not that. Well, this is where with, with a lot of boxes, I've used um, potentiation clusters in the past um, where we'll have them, it's not a circuit per se, but it, it, it's like a, a marriage of, of um, uh, French contrast and cluster work. And, and we'll have them go from, you know, a single squat to uh, a middle throw to a, um, sorry, to, to like a jump squat or something to a, to a um, box squat or box jump. And, and we'll cycle these movements as, as, as singles and do them in a cluster fashion. That way they kind of feel like they're doing a circuit, but they're, they're not. What they're actually doing is, is, a, is a cluster circuit um, and everything's very qualitative, but they like it because it means they're going from one thing to another and it taps into, into that sort of element of stuff they've done in the past. So um, yeah, the potentiation clusters work well. And we use that with combat, uh, our MMA fighters and stuff too. So um, yeah, because they get that, that, that circuit type uh, efforts going from one thing to another thing to another thing, but everything basically serves uh, a higher aim of, of better quality output. Sounds very similar to um, something they used to do at GB Boxing um, whilst I was there. And basically when the bigger, well, as you said, with golf, for the lesser fights, you basically be able to look, you just, just train through it, it's not that important. Um, but for the bigger ones, they'd um, basically do what the outsider looking in would just be a circuit, but it was all high quality jumps, throws, um, make it really competitive, get a tendo unit on the bar and psychologically the boxers would love it because it wasn't that sort of grindy strength type stimulus that they've been presented with weeks prior um yeah and they just leave feeling really fresh even though the irony being that they've just done some really high output type of work yeah i found that that uh approach is 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 really good for for combat athletes um you know and and again if because everything else they do is such a grind um particularly the sparring and the, and and the and the drilling and all that type of stuff if you can take them into an snc session put them through some work and they walk out feeling buzzed then then you know that's that's good you're not adding to the to the to the crush um which is what happens with, you know in the olden days of snc and i was probably guilty of it as well was just adding to that that um that that crush of of, of all the different competing stresses um you know and and now it's it's yeah if you can keep it sort of you know uh approach it with brevity uh think about the whole idea of via, via negativa you know doing doing more with less um and that's the way sort of combat sports snc has changed for me is that i'm now doing i'm doing a lot less but we're getting out a lot more and speak uh speaking of that um again this might sound a little bit paradoxical when i try and explain it um but something that you mentioned in one of your articles that i really loved um, was instead of doing a sort of traditional eight to 12 week uh, training camp, you're talking yep. about building training residuals throughout the year. So you can actually get more out of that official eight to 12 week um, training camp. Do you want to talk about the thought process that's led you to that? Sure. So um, that basically was a situation where I was working with a lot of guys who were sort of, I guess, intermediate level. Um, when you're in the UFC, you have the luxury of having a lot more time. Prior to getting into the UFC, you're taking fights at short notice. 
you're having opponents pull out, it's a lot more unpredictable, it's a lot less stable. So this is where you start to develop sort of agile approaches. And, and what I started doing was, right, if we can um, establish good training residuals, and I think that, that, that having high levels of isometric and eccentric strength are really important for um, combat athletes because it helps build their robustness. Um, and what we do is we spike um, eccentric and isometric strength semi-regularly with super maximal methods, sort of uh, quite intensive, very low volume um, stresses that would then uh, allow us to, to then, if we do get that demand for a fight, we can then peak almost immediately because they're, they're, the strength and, and um, uh, you know, low tolerance that they've built from doing these, these very intensive, very high quality methods um, gives us a great base upon which to build. And, and um, you know, uh, thus far, you know, I've, had, I've not had too many fighters who've been, who've been seriously hurt apart from problems that have occurred, you know, collision sport, combat sport, people are going to get joints hurt and stuff. But we've had no, no in-camp pullouts, which is quite a common problem, um, you know, in MMA. It ruins fight shows where guys will, will pull out, you know, with one or two weeks out. And this is generally because the training load is so lopsided so spiked towards just before the fight, these guys break. Um, whereas what I'm doing is I'm, I'm giving them the most intensive um, strength training uh, stimulus as far away from fight time as possible. And then what we allow to happen is, well, I kind of step off once camp starts and um, the conditioning we do you know, is minimally invasive, minimally uh, um, voluminous, but quite high intensity. Um, and what happens is when, when we get to, to fight, everything's in the sparring. That's what matters is the, is the technical, tactical preparation. We've done the work well out of camp that, that, that will help them uh, with their strength and, and robustness in the fight, hopefully. And that's kind of the, the, the approach to that, what we call um, compressed triphasic approach to MMA. So um, that's, that's what I've been using. And you can use that, that you know, because, you know, you can, you can maybe do uh anywhere from sort of two to four weeks of compressed training and then you've got a grace period of up to sort of 12 weeks where you probably don't need to do it again you only need to maybe do it two three times a year um with with that compressed stuff um and, and this is based off what cal deets the guy who kind of pushed the methods recommendations and and yeah we use that compressed method uh um a fair bit um and and the fighters kind of they, they they hate it uh but uh they they definitely feel the benefits um, just in listening to what well, just in listening to you speak there, um, in terms of training residuals, then could you just well explain for people who don't who haven't come across this term before? And uh, my second yep. follow up question for that is um, just something I'm interested to know: is the training residual of eccentric or isometric strength longer than just your what your traditional lifts would be in the gym? Uh, so in in short, yeah. We've got actually got some good evidence showing that the training residual, say for super maximal eccentrics, might be uh, roughly three months, um, and yeah, which is which is which is a, which is a pretty long time. Um, and there's been really good research done on on super maximal eccentric work. And I think because it is such an outsized stressor, it kind of then has that 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 long second order bleed into everything else you do. Um, you know, but I think the, the key is you have to keep spiking it you know, uh, say two, three times a year to keep that quality um, um, uh, ticking over. Um, and don't get me wrong, 
there's a minimal there's a minimum entry requirement like i'm not going to let guys who are new be doing that type of training because it requires a certain level of, of competence um you know we might go back to that double body weight back squat number uh but it does require a certain level of competence and confidence in the coach as well because it's a hard it's hard work it's a hard method it requires uh you know two spotters and it requires you know um it coaching on how to do like the hand supported split squat or the hand supported squat or or how to do a proper super maximal rdl like the the these methods are, are, are what we're using or how to use weight releases for instance um, you know, so there's a, there's a technical overhead that has to be hit before you can start implementing, you know, super maximal stuff. But in terms of training residuals, it's how long the training effects last over a period of uh, time once that particular stimulus, uh, you know, there's a cessation of that particular stimulus. So once you've stopped using that particular approach, how long do the benefits last for? And it's funny, a study dropped just today or yesterday showing um, basically minimal intervention for maintaining strength and fitness levels. Um, that was in gen pop, but because COVID's have everybody reeling going, oh my God, I'm going to lose my gains. Well, it actually looks like um, uh, residuals are perhaps longer than we think. And the intervention we need, I think that's from the study I was reading this morning, it was a single set of exercise at an appropriate intensity uh, once a week is enough to maintain um, strength gains. And it's like, well, that changes everything, you know, particularly for in-season approach. Now, obviously, because the in-season, you've got other demands um you know with it you've got to try and stave stave off the, the competition of but you might need to do a little bit more but yeah that's 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 a good suggestion that you know um you know one to two times a week uh of a single set you know that sounds pretty good to most people um so you know to not to not lose too much of your strength and and hopefully if you've got a home gym set up or whatever you can still do a little bit so you know, by, by residuals, it, it's, yeah, it's how long a training training effect lasts once it's been. And there's, everyone breaks out the same chart that I see from Prelopin. I think it was Prelopin showing you the, the, the wiggle room from residuals. And well, I think what it's showing is, um, particularly with everything that's going on, some of those residuals last a lot longer than we ever thought. You know, mm -hmm. yes, they won't be, yes, they might not be optimum, but in terms of, 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 of keeping a, a level of tolerance of, of those training residuals, um, you know, there's, there's, uh, yeah, there's, there's now increasing research showing that perhaps they last a lot longer than we ever thought they did. Yeah, I mean, well, a couple of things spring to mind. I remember having a lecture on one of my masters, and the phrase they used was "soon ripe, soon rotten," uh, in the sense of if you literally spend two weeks building strength, you can kiss goodbye to that pretty quickly. But mm. um, for myself, as an example, been lifting five, six years, and I'm sure you've been lifting a lot longer than that. Um, yeah, I still have this negative thing in the back of my head, being like. Well, your strength's going, you're like, hang on a minute. It's been built for about five, six years. It's not going to disappear over <laughs> overnight. Well, this is this is something like I love I love Dan John's books. And something yeah, he so, talks about was, was was how how I think it was how the Soviets would take a month off a year, you know, and then and then his his heuristic I think I think is for every week you have off, that's an extra that's a session you'll have to do to get back to to where you were, you know. And um yeah, I, and funny enough, I started taking, I made sure that I take um, a month off training almost completely, at least uh, uh, every year. I'll spread that out, usually two weeks off at Christmas, and then two weeks I don't do any training during the summer. And this isn't including, this isn't including deload periods or anything, but um, the, 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 sometimes it's mentally freeing just to have two weeks where you, you don't have to go to the gym. You don't have that compulsion. You don't have to, you're not, because a lot of people end up, you know, particularly recreational trainees and powerlifters, for instance, you're almost, you don't become your own person. You're a slave to your workout, right? 
and and people people perhaps don't see it that way because it's a compulsion but it's like you know perhaps just spend a week where you're not you don't have to go you know and don't get me wrong this is weird because it speaks to a tiny minority of people but we do, i do see them day in day out because obviously my gym is an enthusiast gym you know where we get a lot of powerlifters a lot a lot of olympic weightlifters you know don't get me wrong we've got a problem where enough people don't exercise but the people who do quite often do perhaps too much yeah i've uh, i've definitely been guilty of being uh, married to training for an example uh, for want of a better word and uh thinking for example if the program's set up in a certain way oh god but i've missed this day and now what am i going to do whereas now it's just like right here's my sessions here's an ideal order here's a sort of not ideal but better than doing nothing order and you know what if there's not a competition coming up and i don't know this exercise gets substituted for this one as long as the adaptation's the same it's yeah. it's really not as important as i probably once thought it was yeah well this is this is something um i've thought about more as i've gotten older um i'm, I'm gonna be gonna be approaching rapidly approaching 40 uh which means i can't train quite how i used to and what i've started doing in the past five years is I'll go from periods of very structured training, say three months of very, very structured training, and then I'll do three months of, of, of far less structured training. It all serves the same broad aim, which is to, to, to be strong and robust and, and be able to do Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Um, but I feel that, that uh, you know, trying to do everything um, in a very, very structured, ordered fashion all the time is mentally exhausting. Um, and something Dan John refers to is, is park bench versus bus bench workouts. And, um, you know, the, the bus bench workout, you know, or, or training period is where everything's on. It's on time. It's planned. It's structured. You know what's going to happen. And then the bus bench, you know, the park bench workout is you're there at your leisure. You're doing things you enjoy. You're taking your time. You're, you're under no obligation to, 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 to be doing anything. Um, and... I found that flowing from those over, say, 12 to 16 week periods. I'll do, so, for instance, I've just done, I've finished a whole weight releaser cycle. I don't want to look at another weight releaser for at least 12 weeks, you know. So, um, after doing all this release, weight releaser work and then super maximal stuff, um, like I feel it in, my, in, in, you know, it, it, in myself that I need some time now, 12 weeks. I'm going to do very unstructured training, a lot of whatever I feel like, you know. But, you know, I, because I've been, you know, lifting and doing this now for nearly 20 years, I have a level of competence that I can break out and, and do what I feel like more and more, you know, whereas, you know, perhaps when I was 18, 19, I needed to, to you know, stick very fiercely to those fundamentals and those basics. You know, you, know, you, you, you have to earn an abstraction. You, you, you don't get to do that from the get-go. And this is what a lot of, we see, you know, with a lot of, um, I guess fitness, particularly younger generation, is is the the willingness to engage in abstraction early on. It sort of ends up you end up shortcutting yourself, you know. Whereas if you you do engage in fundamentals early and stick to those and adhere to those, you earn the right to then play that little bit more later on. We see this in sport as well, you know. You you get the basic fundamentals down, you know, then you can explore later on. And the same is true for lifting, you know. So you know we're not getting got Joel Seedman territory, but you'll occasionally see me toy with like you know lifts that are sort of novel or different so you know if i want to try a cycle of, of, of staggered trap bar deadlifts i can you know if i want to try you know perhaps doing um you know snatch grip 
dead RDLs for a while instead of uh, you know conventional grip RDLs. If I fancy doing some Zercher work, if I fancy doing some you know uh, novel medball work, or, or 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 perhaps some different contrast work, you know I can play with that stuff. And this is the thing, um, you know. And I talked posted about this recently: eating in your rest, own restaurant and just just you know embodying the virtues you espouse and 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 experimenting and tinkering you know, which is important to, to sort of personal and professional development. So that kind of all ties in. There's a couple of things that just uh, resonated highly with what you've said there. Um, and I hope people don't miss the nuance in what you just said. Um, I was watching a Brett Contreras um, video the other day and somebody asked him about programming. And he said, look, I, I basically wing it. But he's like, the fact is I've been doing <laughs> this for 20 years. So my wing it is probably better than, you know, your yeah. wing it or whatever. Um but yeah, it's funny because that theme has come up in a few podcasts. Um, I mean, myself, I'm currently doing Dan John's even easier strength because I'm like, if I, can't, mm-hmm. if I can't commit to two sets of five with the equipment I've got available, then I can't commit to anything. It's more, right, this is going to give me some structure, but it's not going to be overbearing. Um, and even then playing about with um, some gymnastics rings once a week, just uh, messing around with working towards a one arm chin up. And I've been training that once a week and still been progressing quite nicely. And mm. to be honest, I've just been using that as a bit of fun rather than, oh, let's test minimal dose training. But it seems it seems to be working. Um, GB Judo also have, I remember listening to, I think it's Alan McDonald. And he was talking about this two times bodyweight back squat. And he said in his head, he'd rather get someone, if once they've got this two times bodyweight back squat, he'd rather see how many different ways they can perform a two times bodyweight back squat rather than go from two to say 2.5 as an example. Um, mm. but yeah, the, for me, especially with combining calisthenics, powerlifting, like the more strength you've got, the more you can play with it. And to be honest, I remember asking my powerlifting coaches, oh, why are we doing this variation? What, what part of my lift is that going to help with? And he's like, it's literally just something different. Like, don't, don't think that this is the magical variation that you've been missing that's the key to all your lifts. It's literally just... We're switching it up so you get become desensitized to stuff we might use later on. Yeah, and this this speaks to uh, another approach that I took from uh, Maladin Jovanovic uh, in the, the you know the every, everyday maximum approach. Um, and you know, it, I guess it's partly inspired by sort of some of the Bulgarian uh, method, which is sort of you know m- you know work to a heavy heavy single every single day. I guess it's slightly different in the in the the with the EDM EDM approach for everyday max that that I use. It's a good way to spike training intensity in season, so you work up to to, to a heavy single, um, but it's with a max that that you can do any day of the week. No hype, no back slapping, no no triple espresso, nothing like that. And you you perform that lift, and then what I'll do is quite often prescribe back offsets as a at a at a at a percentage of that daily edm um and we'll use that to help 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 uh, spike training load um you know to and because it helps athletes feel stronger which is the other thing and we'll use that quite often if they've been on a little bit of a break um and they want to come back but they want to they want to they don't fancy conventional sort of uh, gpp cycle they want to do a little bit of heavy lifting so we'll, we'll, we'll come and have them come in and do that um i posted two methods on twitter and instagram just yesterday that we use where we sort of do an edm lift at the start of a session then a lot of gpp work or we'll pick a couple of lifts an edm each one for that day and then do a couple of subsequent back offsets um just just stuff like that and that's you know sort of carking back to dan john i remember reading an article by him where it's like um you know 
every workout, go into the gym. Uh, and this is like how to improve your front squat or something along those lines. Go in, do two reps, two sets of two, 80% every day on your front squat. Every, it's not every day, every session. I think it was clear to point that out. Every session, go in and do that and then see where your front squat is after two weeks because that, that acute training spike might be enough to, 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 to move the needle. And, you know, again, with the EDM stuff, we'll use that in season as well, because that way the athletes can moderate. So with the golfers, for instance, uh, you know, if they're in season, they'll, they'll, they'll land uh, at, a, at, a, at a tournament and then quite often either Monday or Tuesday, they'll EDM a sort of KPI lift for low body, trap bar dead, something like that. Trap bar dead is great because obviously very little eccentric stress. They can load up pull a heavy single, then do a couple of back offsets. They feel strong. They've honored the, 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 the force part of the, 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 the equation of their training. And then they can move on to, to all the, the more specific stuff, you know? And, and um, that's where sort of EDM approach works really well. But you wouldn't use that with beginners. I remember when, when I was renting space at a CrossFit gym, I quite often tell guys not to come in and try and max out every day because their competence isn't high enough. They, 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 they haven't established high enough strength levels to warrant this sort of training approach. Their competence isn't high enough. Their te technical aberrations too high. So every time they try and max out, it turns into an absolute shit show. And, and, but but that, that, that's not really EDM. That's just shooting for a max randomly. You know, it's, you're not really honoring the rest of your training. And that was always kind of, I guess, part of the problem with CrossFit is it didn't really honor any long-term plan, at least for the guys doing it recreationally. You know, and, and um, whereas now, you know, it's funny because I'm, I'm so, so, well, what do you, what do you want to do today? You know, they go, well, we'll do, we'll do EDM squat. We'll do EDM deadlift or bench, you know, and, and um, but because these guys have, 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 have stuck to it for a while, they're competent. I have confidence in them. They have confidence in themselves. They can do it, you know, and, and, and this is where, you know, um, uh, you know, what's the, what's the saying? Uh, not a, don't do as I say, no, what was yeah, I do? do or as whatever I say. It is. Okay. That's, do as I say, not as I do. Not what I do. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, and with beginners, that's, that's, that's more important. Whereas, um, you know, when guys get more advanced then they can start to play, you know, they can start to explore a little bit. Yeah. And I mean, it's probably again, a lot similar to a lot of your work I've read, um, in terms of, so your everyday maximum. Um, so I've been using, well, when I'm training for a meet, something I'll do is a single RPA. So, a single but really you could have done it for three um mm -hmm. and i find that just across a training block and how you've described in terms of percentage drop-offs that's literally how i've been training for probably the last uh well certainly the years that i've been competing in powerlifting and uh yeah it's been making it's uh, been making me think about where the adaptation is actually coming from so as an example when i go back into the gym um when gyms do reopen i'll have a block of gp gpp work undoubtedly and then when I transition into a strength block, I'll be hitting those everyday maximums. And then I'll be thinking, right, when that's trending upwards, let's say over four weeks or whatever, is it because I'm producing more force or is it just because I'm becoming more skilled at lifting at that high percentage? Um, again, just to go off on a bit of a tangent, um, I think this a lot when you see case studies presented where you take a beginner and I don't know, they squat 80 kilos or whatever it is. And then 12 weeks later, they squat, I don't know, 100 and it's like, oh, they're stronger. And you're like, well, yeah, are they producing more force or are they just more skilled at the lift? Because if mm -hmm. the aim of the lifting is to improve force production and all we've done is get more skilled at the lift, then have we improved force production or we just, you know, it's sort of like, so, go on. There's, there's one intangible there that you've got to account for. And this is something I'm very, very big on, particularly very, very recently. And I, 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 it, it, there's a 
section devoted to it in the big hitters manual and and uh i've done a few posts talking about the concept because it's a concept i'm still trying to unpick which is the concept of intent and it's a, for a lot of people you know perhaps in the case of that that lifter who started at 80 and finished at 100 a big part of that might be their relationship with their confidence uh and intent to intent in the way they approach the lift and this is um why some of the gains we see in golf with the club head speed uh come from is from from intent and well, what do we mean by intent it's 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 the effort you put into something yes but there's more involved in intent than that and this is something i'm still trying to work on i'm trying to find a working model for what i mean um by intent and it's the effort you put into something sure but it's, uh, there's a lot of intangibles there your, your confidence your technical competency the 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 psychosocial factors of the environment as well because sometimes you can find more intent in certain environments than you can in others you know um can you get into a flow state easy enough you know and and, and things like that and and um you know for instance you have a situation i felt this personally where this is where my training's kind of changed as i've gotten older i used to listen to to you know um you know sort of loud metal music and and would drink the triple espresso and i'd step up to the bar and my intent would evaporate i i go to lift it and it would be an absolute grind a shit show and it's like well, well i've overshot here this is this is this is i've not found that 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 optimum sort of state of centeredness where i need to be to give this my best so now you know i'm i'm um you know skipping the triple espresso i'm listening to lo-fi hip-hop and i'm getting into a sort of funner sort of more contemplative uh state for for lifting than i am you know wasn't than i was in the past and and everything just sort of feels smoother you know and i think this is again where sort of the theory the theory of intent and and the way you approach each workout and we can measure intent to some extent with with velocity-based measures and we can then try and this has been measured we've seen it uh, where we've had guys um you know lift measure their velocity on the bar get them to lift again but focus on lifting it as fast as they can go in with the effort that that, that you've got to go in and you're going to lift this as fast as you can this time you're going to beat the numbers you threw up last time on your velocity measures and it gets better and we've seen uh small interventions where they're basically I, I guess this is part of the coach where they've gone in they've emphasized intent on every single set and every single workout and everything is that much better the outcomes are better rather than the people who did it with no sort of intent based focus and it's partly psychological it's partly physiological and this is why it's nebulous and, and relativistic it's hard to unpick you know so this is this is sort of part of the equation too to all of this and and then those back offsets feel feel super breezy as a result you know whereas i've done programs in the before that have demanded percentage of a maximum sort of at 90 kilos plus and there's that 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 well i've got to get the double i've got to get the, the two sets of two or the three sets of three or the three sets of two or whatever but building to this point you go out and you go for it and and it stinks you know um because you're trying to honor a long-term plan that's perhaps just a little bit too long and isn't willing to adapt around your present circumstances and this is where you know, going back to Milad and Jovanovic's thinking with the agile periodized approach is that you have that pliability in your training that can adapt to the, the, the present state you find yourself in. And that's where the obviously EDM is, is great for that because, you know, you know how you feel. But again, it requires a minimum competency, you know, for beginners, you know, they need structure, they need order. 
and, and, and they will do for the first maybe year or two of training. But then once they're competent, they don't need that anymore. Yeah, and I think there's something to be said for the psycho- psychology of programming for beginners in the sense of you'll write like an exact number. It's like, I don't know, someone's barbell squatting like 20 kilos. And it's like, oh, last week I did 17 and a half. And you're like, it really doesn't matter because you're so <laughs> weak and you're so unaccustomed yeah. to the stimulus. Um, yeah. but I also like with the EDM stuff because I'm a massive overthinker when it comes to my own training, which is why mm-hmm. I love it when my powerlifting coach uh, writes me a program. But with that, EDM I'm like oh well if last week I don't know I did x amount of weight and I'm like oh do I feel like I'm this good or do I feel like I'm and you're like you probably feel roughly around the same but now you're like right I've got a number to shoot for so even if I go two and a half kilos more with the same effort level psychologically that feels great and even if I don't feel great it's like well the load on the bar isn't it is determining the adaptation but it isn't it's like well how heavy it feels is what's ultimately going to determine it and psychologically that's quite refreshing compared to as you said i've got to hit two doubles at this number otherwise the session's a waste of time yeah and and i've come out of sessions before i think this was part of the reason why um when i tried west side for instance i found it such hard work um because some days when you're doing that max effort max effort method um uh, and I'm trying to hit three PBs on, on, on a novel rotation of a lift and my heart's not in it. I can't do it. And, and, and it burned me out super fast. Um, you know, but, uh, yeah, it was just that, that, that trying to push the envelope every single time, even if the lift's different, you know, and, and, but they're just such hard work and, and, and yeah, that, that approach personally was, was not particularly good for me. Well, it's funny because just uh, just hearing you talk there about novel exercise rotations and going back to what we were chatting earlier on about in terms of um, having periods of structured training and periods of unstructured training, mm. the amount of times where, for example, at the moment, um, I've got a 36 kilo kettlebell, some odds and sods weights that I can shove in a backpack and I'm just practicing skater squats. I'm like, oh, that's a skater squat PB. I mean, I've only really trained it for three <laughs> weeks, but we'll take everything we can get. Exactly. Um, and uh, just cycling back to the uh, ballistic work we were talking about. Um, sure. Would you, are there going to be any massive differences between the kind of ballistic work you're going to have for a golfer versus an MMA guy? Or is it just all, we'll start extensive and move towards intensive? Yeah, so we honour we honor the extensive to intensive relationship. Um, and the other, the other heuristic I use is the heavier the med ball we use, the less specific the throw is going to look. So we'll use like lobs and tosses with very with heavier med balls, um, but then as we get to lighter med balls, we'll switch to the to the throw. And when it comes to the difference between combat athletes and golfers, the difference is this: is the relationship um, of their hips to the direction of uh, the vector of the force vector of the throw, basically. Um, so if you've got a golfer, they are always going to be throwing laterally. Whereas with the um, with the MMA athlete, the, the, at least the, the 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 final part of the throw will be will be in the sagittal plane, because if you think about the relationship to the sport, golfers always are going to be striking laterally, whereas an MMA fighter, um, you know, yes, it's quasi lateral, but it's always going to be in a uh, the the hips will be facing the direction of the hand. If you understand what I'm saying, yeah. So and, and you have to honor that when it comes to doing your, your, your uh, sort of high speed, highly specific med ball work. So, um, you know, the, the hips are going to be more square for the MMA athlete. And you can see this 
um, for instance, in some of the peaking work, I think there was a series of videos I did with Corey McKenna showing some contrast throwing and striking. And you've got, you know, the relationship of the hips is always square to the direction of travel of the, of the med ball. Uh, not completely square, but, but sort of pretty square. Whereas golfers are always going to be, it's going to be separation of the shoulder and then back to, 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 to center again. And that's the, the relationship between, between the two things is, is slightly different. And you just have to, to honor that when it comes to peaking. And uh, in terms of, uh, I think I might have asked this earlier, but in terms of measuring the ability to separate hips from shoulders, how do you, mm -hmm. do, do you do any of that with your golfers? Yeah, yeah. so we, we, it's part of our general assessment is the ability to, to, to separate. And that's a simple either standing or sitting test. Uh, and then we just, we just uh, measure degrees of, of, of separation. And, um, you know, some athletes are great at creating separation and, and, it, and it bleeds into their swing style. Other athletes perhaps aren't so good or the coach identifies, and this is where talking to the golf coach is important, or the athlete themselves identify a lack of, of, of separation as an issue. You know, you can, you can try and work on that as best you can, but obviously different people have different tolerances in terms of the amount of torque they can handle through the spine. Um, and we can help with that because obviously you're going to get a lot more rotation out of the thoracic spine. So a lot of our assessments, particularly the ones we use with golfers, are all around the T-spine. Uh, the physios at our gym have a really good system of like looking at T-spine mobility and checking that through thoroughly to make sure there's nothing kind of getting in the way. And so, you know, if you start then teach them to separate their T-spine well, so that's why we do uh, a lot of lateral, what we call lateral swings, where we'll get people into a hinge position and then get them to, to rotate uh, into the supporting, same sign supporting leg. And then we try and work on building that rotation and building strength in that position. Um, you know, because you got to remember that the golf swing, it's not just like standing up straight and, and rotating, right? These guys are, these guys are in a quasi hinge position. So, you know, can they, can they push their hip back? Can they get into a sort of quasi hinge position and then also rotate at the same time? Um, which is we, with MMA, the difference is obviously they're far more upright. They're not in a, they're not in a hinge position. Uh, they're in a sort of a staggered stance position. So you need to check their rotation specific to the positions they'll find themselves in the sport, right? Now, don't get me wrong. In MMA, you don't need a ton of T-spine rotation. In fact, too much can be bad, um, you know, because you want them to be able to generate decent force, um, you know, whereas if they're, 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 they're over-rotating their punches, then that can also be an issue in golf and in, in or, or in MMA, sorry. So if they're over-rotating. Um, and you mentioned, for example, golf being a quasi hinge, and you mentioned a sort of staggered stance, uh, style mm -hmm. deadlift just now and earlier on. Um, in chatting off air with you, you mentioned your uh, hinge manual, and uh, I just yep. asked whether it was a series of progressions, which, um, not to say it's been done to death, um, but it probably has been in SNC circles. But what is your hinge manual bringing, or why do you feel the need to put it out there, and what do you think it brings that you haven't seen elsewhere? Yeah, so it's something I'm working on with um, Alex Krzyzewski, who is uh, one of the physios at our facility. And um, basically, we, we realized that, that um, the, the hinge is probably uh, one of the most, it's probably more neglected in favor of the squat, um, particularly in athletic populations, because the focus is always on, on squatting, either unilateral or bilateral squatting. And then there's the big issue around for sports performance around hamstring injuries and, and the nature of hamstring injuries and how they come out, come about. And we're of the opinion that you need both uh, distal and proximal hamstring strength. So you do your knee flexion based work, you do your, your hip extension based work, 
um, and, and work on those to, 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 to develop really, really strong bulletproof posterior chain. Um, and it's, it's about both marrying that, how to teach the, the hinge as a pattern, because occasionally you get people and, and as a coach, um, teaching the squat is always easy. Most of the time you can, you can get people to figure out the squat, usually uh, a simple implementation of, of, of some sort of external um, support or handhold. So for instance, you can get most people to squat if they hold onto something in front of themselves. You know, they're very, very basic. Um, or if you prop the heels up to make up for lack of dorsiflexion, you can usually within a session, get someone squatting in some fashion. When you get someone in who is hinge adverse or, or hingeless, as we call them, they don't know how to do it. I've seen, I've seen um, sort of intermediate and, and, and amateur coaches absolutely fall apart when they can't teach someone how to hinge because most people they just flop through their their lumbar or through their t-spine they'll just they'll just fold over um because they don't understand uh how to push the hips back how to um uh move themselves and a lot of it comes with um what the head is doing um and this is something else we talk about in the hinge manual is that basically you know if, if the head goes forward the hips go back if the head goes back the hips comes hips come forward and um a lot of people don't have this relationship from from foot to hip to head and how they coordinate and uh, you know you give someone a dowel and tell them to do a, a a a proper hinge or an rdl type pattern and most of the time you'll see them just you know drop their head down low and their their teeth their t-spine folds and they they can't do it and i've seen guys like said i've seen coaches fall apart when when the hinge pattern just isn't they get a newbie in and the hinge pattern just isn't happening so you have to then sort of constrain them and try and find means um, to try and get them in a position where they're going to keep their, their, their torso completely straight and learn how to push the hips backwards, keeping that sort of slight knee bend. And this is the other thing with, with um, you know, the hinge pattern is, is, is like how much knee bend am I allowed to do? Uh, you know, where are my hips going? Where's my torso going? And it's like basically what is a hinge? What is not, what is not, is it, what, what is not a hinge? And then looking at basically where we can apply very heavy hinging as a driver of athletic performance. Um, and if you look at a lot of athletic movements, again, the focus has been on the squat, but uh, you know, we pay lip service to how big a driver of movement um, um, the glutes are and the hips are. Brett Contreras led it, Brett Contreras, you know, um, led us all down the garden path when it came to hip thrusts because he was trying to carve out a niche and people were hammering, hammering, hammering hip thrusts but they weren't seeing a lot of the positive change. And, and the, obviously uh, we had those evidence come out suggesting that hip thrusts weren't the one for improving horizontal force production, right? Um, the vector theory and all that turned out to not be what we thought it was. Um, and then there was a great study that showed that pr pretty much from an EMG standpoint, Romanian deadlifts and hip thrusts aren't really very different to each other. So, I've been RDLing all along and have gone, I'm not really buying the hip thrust. In fact, some of my guys complained that the hip thrust was hurting their backs and we try and set it up in all sorts of fashions. The only thing that seemed to work super well was a very, very heavy banded hip thrust, but the barbell hip thrust, some guys could, could do six, 700 pounds, 300 kilo hip thrust. And I'd have other guys who were, you know, super strong on other lifts. They do the hip thrust and they could, they could, you know, they complain their backs hurt or their hips hurt or whatever. And this is utterly perplexing me. 
So we buried down on the Romanian deadlift and, and, and basically tried to get as many of our guys to master heavy Romanian deadlifting uh, as much as possible. And, you know, the touch wood, none of the athletes I've worked with, you know, including our rugby guys, have, you know, we never really had a serious hamstring issue. Um, and I'm of the opinion, particularly with super maximal eccentrics, um, we can probably get some fascicle length change as well in the hamstring. And, you know, super maximal RDLs aren't easy. You need to be good at Romanian deadlifts to do them. But basically, you, you know, you're walking out in excess of your Romanian deadlift or even deadlift maximum. And you're basically, you know, pushing your hips back and trying to ride that down to catches, you know, usually just below your knee. And I tell you what, your hamstrings and glutes afterwards, there's nothing quite like it. Um, I've never had, um, personally, I, I like to test everything I'm putting forwards. I've never had glute and hamstring doms like that before in my life. And I've done hip thrusts. I've done conventional RDLs. I've done all this type of stuff. And, and, and yeah, it was, it was absolutely unreal. And I'm of the opinion, you know, that, uh, if you bury down deep enough on the RDL, there's some diamonds to find there, but unfortunately the research at the moment isn't really honoring it because there's two problems with Romanian deadlift research generally not heavy enough and uh there's generally not enough competence in the practitioners performing the romanian deadlift they're not good enough at romanian deadlifts because there's an optimum point at which you want your knees bent enough that it's not totally hamstring dominant but you don't want your knees so bent that you look you, your hamstring slacken and this is where a lot of people get unstuck is they generally too much knee bend and there's too much slack in the hamstring so you've got to find a sweet spot in between the two where your knees are, uh, you know, and that takes time. And the other problem is it takes feel. And teaching that feel to people is really, really difficult. And obviously with the, with the hinge manual, this is something we're going to try and discuss and talk about is like, you know, looking for that feel. But then once you get competent at the Romanian deadlift, it opens up so much other stuff to you. I love trap bar Romanian deadlifts. I love, um, you know, staggered Romanian deadlifts. Zercha Good Mornings, which are technically a, a, a Romanian deadlift variant if done done properly, um, you know, and it just opens up to a lot of different potential hinge movements for you if you get very very good at the Romanian deadlift. Again, another variant, Snatch Grip Romanian deadlift is another great choice, um, and it opens up a lot of a lot of options. And I'm of the opinion that 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 if you're combining heavy RDLs, you know, if you if you want to do your Nordics, if you want to do your direct hamstring work you know, you're going to have been a position where, you know, the hamstrings are going to be, you know, super strong, hopefully able to tolerate the, the training you're doing. And the only criticism I've had is I've known guys, particularly sprint coaches have gone, oh, we tried heavy RDLs and the guys were pulling up saying their hamstrings felt tight. And it's like, well, yeah, you don't do your heaviest RDL work at the same time you're trying to do your max velocity work. You're trying to honor two things at once. That's not going to work. You know, if you can do like lower intensity sprint work during a very intensive RDL a period you know don't put the two things together at the once you're asking too much of the hamstrings you know but I feel if you were to set up your training properly um you know you could get a lot out of Romanian deadlifts yeah so yeah that's that's kind of kind of sorry just come back to the, to the whole hinge thing which I was talking about so yeah no it's a nice point and it, it's funny because um when I used to work um, at an all-girls school, I basically would use a combination of the hip thrust, but we would literally do various different um, constraints-based hinge patterns because I was like, right, we can get you pretty strong pretty quickly on the hip thrust in terms of a low barrier to entry, 
but then I still think the skill of being able to hinge ultimately is going to get you further mm. down the line than whatever we can load up on a hip thrust. And also in my mind, I kind of wrestled with the fact was that right, if you can't competently hinge while we're loading up a hip thrust, I'm like, is that basically uh, adding, a, adding a match to the gasoline? Mm. Well, the thing is the, 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 the hinge or the RDL pays respect to your relationship with the floor in a fashion that's, I guessing more sports specific because you know, you're, you're kind of pulling the ground and, and there's some great actualization exercises involving like um, prime times. So straight, straight legged uh, bounds, um, single leg RDL hops, stuff I've taken from sprint coaches. Um, combine that with the, with the heavy RDL and you're in a really good position. Uh, I'm of the opinion because you got to remember the RDL basically is, is, is actioning almost dragging against the ground uh, with the foot you know, um, if you bury your toe into the floor as you pull on the RDL, you're almost gripping the floor. Um, and just honoring that relationship, uh, so you're vertical as well, which, which is important. Whereas I feel that obviously with the hip thrust, the relationship with the ground is never really addressed because you're either on your heels, you might be flat-footed, but you're not really putting a ton of force into the floor. Um, you know, so it, it, it's... Um, it varies. And then obviously the loading you have to get to, to get a lot out of the, the hip thrust was always, you know, I've seen videos of, of, you know, fitness chicks doing hip thrust with like 500 pounds plus. And it's like, well, what does that say about the movement? And you know, that, that the people are, how many people do you see 500 pound RDLs? And again, just, just you know, to, just to emphasize the point, I had like girls at like school who I'd been, who'd only, whose only exposure to strength training was, the exposure that I'd given them hip thrusting like 140 for eight at like, I don't know, 65 ish mm -hmm. kilos body weight. And I'm like, there yep. is, if I put double your body weight on your back for a squat or on the trap bar, it is not moving. And yeah. you're like, right. Am I really, and it goes back to what are you measuring and what you think you're measuring is that, like, are you actually getting more robust from the hip thrust or is it just masking over some other fragilities? Should we say? Well, the thing is the hip thrust doesn't really respect eccentric lengthening of the hamstrings, does it? You're not going to get the same eccentric stress that you can get with a Romanian deadlift. And I think that's the, the, the beauty of the, the RDL is that it's a triphasic movement in its nature. And you can train all three parts of, of, of the eccentric, isometric and concentric element. Whereas I guess with heavy hip thrust, quite often, because the bars are resetting to the floor every time, you're stealing away that isometric. Don't get me wrong. You can do hip thrusts where you don't put the bar down, but most people are resetting every time and then jamming their hips into that thing, you know, and, and you're not really getting good, good triphasic stimulus from it um, because of the way the different interpretations of the hip thrust. And it's kind of the way I think about um, pressing work for athletes in the sense of, um, for example, if you take a traditional um, overhead press, once I've locked that out, I'm pretty much going to let it crash on me. I'm not, I'm not going to mm -hmm. lock it out and then tempo it down. And uh, again, going back to hip thrusts, if you're loading it heavy enough to get, I suppose, what you would call a strength adaptation, then you're probably just naturally going to let it crash on you a little bit, even with all the will in the world not to do that. As yeah. soon as it gets above a certain weight, you're probably going to do it without even realizing. So what happens is, I guess, is it becomes a means of expressing force rather than training it. Which is which is my also my issue with very very high handled trap bar dead, 
is because you see a lot of people, oh, I deadlift 600 pounds. You see this, you know, with the rogue trap bar, which has handles kind of mid thigh, I think. And uh, I've roast a few SNC guys for posting videos of them doing uh, oh, 600 pound trap bar. Deadlift. So those handles are above your knees, mate. That's uh, and it's just output. All, it's, all, all, you're, all you're showing is, is high levels of force expression. You're not really training high levels of force expression. Um, I love trap bar deads. Don't get me wrong. I've written articles about them. And I think, I think it's terrific, but, you know, the, there's, a, there's a point at which it, it goes from being a, a good way of, of, of getting quality output repeatedly to just being uh, a means of, of showing high levels of force expression, you know, like a like a rack pull or something, you know. Yeah, I, I think that's a great point as well. I remember listening to a podcast a while back and saying this is the problem with social media is that you see what it's you see the expression of a skill or a quality, but you don't see what it took to develop it like. I always make the argument that the stuff I've posted from my own powerlifting, um, the most part of my training has been, as Dan John would say, punch the clock workouts, nothing to write home about, nothing that's going to get likes on Instagram. But then you pull like triple body weight and it's like, oh, how did you get there? It's like, yeah, do this four or five times a week for five, six years. And yeah, <laughs> come talk to me. Nobody's interested in that. Nobody, nobody cares about that. No. You know, it's all about it's all, it's all about the, the the show. You know, it's all about the 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 um the circus of of, of fitness as opposed to to the sort of you know the hands on work, the behind the scenes stuff. You know, it's not eye catching. You know, people aren't interested in it. And then you get people. What they do is they'll engage in in audience capture, and they'll like a great example you know and and don't get me wrong i call them fitness clowns and i kind of mean that in the nicest sense the great example is Gigi Gigi mufu whatever his name is um <laughs> brilliant and, example. and it, well well the, the point is he knows because he knows what he's doing you know he knows exactly what he's doing and um you know basically his his his, his he, what he does is basically he's just sort of expressing strength in novel fashion to garner much attention as possible right so he's always doing a, a wacky thing every other week. And this is partly audience capture because obviously you do something goofy or strange and it gets a lot of views. And you're like, well, this stuff seems to gain traction. If I do more of this stuff, I'll get even more traction. And so any positive health or fitness message has been thrown out the window. And it's just what goofy thing is Juju Mufu doing this week? You know, and, and this is, you know, particularly female fitness uh, personalities and, and, you know, some of the male ones. They just start engaging in audience capture and it's all about getting views. There's no message. There's no cogent strategy. Um, to, the only strategy is get more views, right? Yeah. So there's no, there's no message. And they, these guys say, oh, I'm, I'm inspirational. I'm motivational. It's like, well, there's no real content to what you're doing. It's a, it's a sideshow. You know, it's, it's, it's all about views, you know. Um, and what happens is, is, is the, you know, the message is lost. Um, you know, the message just becomes, here's my latest and greatest trick as opposed to here's how I think you can better yourself, you know? And then this is a big problem we're seeing at the moment with, with social media and, and fitness and strength and conditioning, you know, uh, Joel Seidman's a great example of a guy engaging in, in, and it's not tinkering. There's a difference. Um, you know, tinkering, you can see the, 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 you can kind of see the strategy and progression in the thinking of what someone's doing as they, as they, you know, develop novel approaches. A good example is, is um, uh, Tony Ricky, who works with a lot of MMA guys. If you were to take a look on his Instagram initially, you go, bloody hell, this is a load of weird horizontal force production stuff that just look, looks goofy. But if you go back through his posts, you can see actually he's, he's approached this point in an iterated fashion. You go to Joel Seidman's Instagram and 
it's there's no iteration there it's what's the wacky exercise of the day you know and and because it's novel and because he's engaging in audience capture he's he knows that he has to put up something novel and different every single time because you you other you've got to outdo yourself right and and it becomes a, a an ever accelerating upward game there's no cogent message there's no no nothing real no real theoretical backing care when and flat exposed him for that um you know and 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 there's, there's no coherence there's no strategy there and people are going to probably have a umbra you know issue with me saying this stuff but this is what i'm seeing but not a lot of people are talking about it i know we've gone way off that topic for what we were intending to talk about today but uh, you know i think it's important and more strength coaches and more people in fitness need to have these conversations about what's happening on social media and i've done a few posts about this what i'm seeing you know and 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 it's at the end of the day you know it's people people playing games and, and engaging in, in in audience capture and strategies to try and maximize a following as opposed to put out anything progressive or meaningful in terms of improving the industry or improving people's lives i think it's it's so difficult to tread dare i say tread that line like uh, for example uh, stefan jones who i had on the podcast so for me he's sort of right on the line of some of this stuff that's super super interesting and when you yep. talk to him you're like wow there is some real well thought out methodology here um, mm -hmm. but it's so easy to look at certain stuff yeah. and think where on earth does this come from like the go juju mufu goes back to what we were saying ridiculously strong guy i mean i'm not gonna lie i've seen his videos of like he'll put on like a safety bar and like mow the lawn with 200 kilos on his back and you're just like you know hopefully someone watches that and thinks jesus this guy has obviously done some boring stuff to do entertaining stuff but it's it's such a fascinating discussion because you know it, it's difficult to question people's uh not motives that's the wrong word but you know in theory more people let's say i don't know a million people watch that video and then i don't know half a million people watch him i don't know talk about safety bar squats and then even less listen to him talk about how to teach a squat um mm -hmm. but again even going slightly off topic further when you're saying about your hinge manual the uh the analogy i would use when trying to or where i found myself in trying to teach the hinge sometimes is it's like if you've ever gone to a restaurant and i don't know one of the table legs isn't quite sitting right so your table's sort of rocking back and forth so you ask the waiter if they can sort it out and i don't know they put like a beer mat or whatever underneath the table and you're like oh great fixed it oh but now it's rocking on the other side like it's so easy to think right i'll try this constraint okay i've fixed the i don't know the spine being neutral oh great now they're bending their knees too much and you know you almost end up going around in circles, but that's the kind of stuff you don't see on social media because nobody wants to say, Hey, I've spent 45 minutes of an hour session trying to teach someone a hinge pattern and they didn't leave the session feeling out of breath. And they probably didn't understand the importance of what we were doing. But this is, this is the important thing is that we, we don't learn in a linear fashion and we learn via convexity. So um, things like taking risks, tinkering and iterating are really important. You can see that Stephen Jones's approach, you know, yes, he's trying to sell you something, but it, it's iterated. You can see that he's a process there and, and he outlines it. You know, you see him re constantly reposting the fact that every, all this specificity work you see is built on a pyramid of general preparation. It's not like he's not doing that stuff. He is. He's told me himself. You know, it's 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 the fact that you're seeing the, the end expression of, of, of what it is he's trying to achieve. It's just people, you know, and golf is guilty of this, of trying to skip to that part right away. 
you know, but he's definitely thought about it long and hard. And, and, you know, there's good rationale behind what he's doing. You know, I'm perhaps more conservative. I'm more of a meat and potatoes strength and conditioning coach, but I would dabble in that stuff when I feel that the athletes are in the right place there. And you'll see some of my specific golf work, you know, but it does look very like golf. We're using things like overspeed devices, specific medical work, that type of stuff. But, you know, I'm very keen not to get engaged in the game of putting all that stuff first and foremost and making it all I'm about. I'm keen on, on showing that, look, there's, there's the base of work that sits at the bottom of that pyramid, you know, um, because my overall message is still you need decent levels of general preparation before you start engaging in specific preparation, um, you know, and it's just, yeah, not, not to get caught up in audience capture like a Joel Seedman or someone like that who's, who's basically it's just, you know, the next zany, wacky thing um, every other week. And, and yeah, like the, the, the showing, show your tinkering, basically, is, is, you could be the quote there, show, show your tinkering, show that you're experimenting, show that you're playing around with ideas, um, you know, um, but you have to be able to rationalize and explain yourself, you know, and that's the one thing I guess nobody's willing to do anymore is, is nobody, you know, uh, I guess it's a problem with sort of a slightly relativistic age we live in is that, you know, years ago, a teacher, you, you're trying to solve a math problem and your teacher goes, show your work and you have to sit there and, 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 you know, show them how you got to the answer. Um, whereas now people are unwilling to ask that question is right. Show us how you got here. What's, what's your line of thinking? What's your strategy? And it's, you know, again, because, because we live in a, in an age that where people are very unwilling to make any real value judgment, you know, your program's bad, your program's good. This program's bad. This program's no good. And, and I've, again, something I've spoken about is this relativistic notion of like all roads lead to Rome. I hate that phrase. Strength and conditioning coaches say, say that phrase. And I say, no, it's not all roads lead to Rome. That's a get out of jail free card. If your method sucks, your method sucks. And you need to be able to demonstrate objectively that it doesn't. You know, the onus is on you to be able to demonstrate that your approach works as best as, best as you can. You know, whereas, whereas, you know, again, going back to the, to the Seidman debate with Keir, he started pulling out N1 answers and very relativistic answers, appeals to authority, you know, and, and um, again, people are afraid to have this type of discussion because, again, there's this sort of relativistic notion that, that, that there's an equalness to all answers. And that's not true. Um, sport fundamentally is, is not very egalitarian. There's winners and losers. And, you know, hopefully the best methods and the best approaches do propagate to the top. And just in and just in listening to you uh, speak there, it reminds me of um, another guest I've had on the show, uh, the Mindful Mover. And he one of the things he calls out within the strength and conditioning industry, which, again, I think because it's sort of unheard of to speak negatively or I think constructively about another person's work is he mm. says it's a complete cop out to say that there are no bad exercises, you know, and every exercise might have a place depending on the context. And again, not to call out Joel Seidman, but that's the main issue I have, having never spoken to him, again, I'll say that on, on there, is that I can't see the thinking behind why you would combine this movement with this movement with this movement and why that's somehow superior to overloading the qualities that mm -hmm. those individual movements would give you. And that that's my issue with it. Um, again, maybe if I spoke to him, he would be able to say, oh, well, actually here's the thing behind it and as an example i know stefan from having spoken to him personally and listened to him on other podcasts he said look there's only so many videos of squat hinge push pull that i can do and he'll probably say that he's 
not only meeting his audience where he's at, but he's like, my social media does not reflect every single thing that I do in my training. Mm. But that's the issue I have with Joel Seedman stuff in that I can't work out the decision-making process no. that led you to think that that was the best exercise. I mean, even going back to your all roads mm. lead to Rome, it also reminds me of when strength and conditioning coaches or techs talk about cutting out stuff that doesn't improve performance. And I'm like, why are we even having that discussion? Why, why does it make it into the program if it doesn't? Like, why would you be like, it's kind of like what I call exercise FOMO. It's like, oh, we'll put it in there just in case mm. that is the difference maker. But it's like the yeah. TPI screens and hitting the ball, you know, with a greater club speed. It's like, I don't think that's the missing piece of the puzzle. Yeah, it's the, it's the insidious sort of marginal gains type thinking that occurred um you know whereas yeah, most people actually don't need to focus on marginal gains they need to focus on their maximal gain and and this is the mistake a, a, a lot of folks are making and still making is that is that you know what can i maximize you know whereas people what they're doing is they're, they're looking around the periphery you know for quick quick easy answers um for for, for short you know easy solutions to problems and and you know, again, what people need to focus on is, is you know, maximal issues. You know, what, what's the fundamentals of stuff I need to get, get better at? And I guess the difference is, the thing is, you know, what we need more of is pragmatism, you know, and, and this is something I've spoken about an awful lot as well is, is you know, you need to be able to, to have your methods come in contact with the real world, make objective decisions about them and decide whether to keep them or to let them go. However, if you're ideologically possessed, that's not going to happen. You're going to try and do everything in your power to prove that your methods work, you know, even using N1 situations or how many followers you happen to have, you know, but we've seen this in research, people going out of their way to design research studies that positively favor the outcomes people desire. That's not science, you know, that's ideological possession and, and it, to say it doesn't happen in strength and conditioning, you'd be a fool. You know, we know that it does happen and that there are certain studies that definitely do buy, you know, favorable outcomes for the, what the researcher wants, not what the, the science really should say. Yeah. And uh, again, I don't know why my brain's going off on this tangent, but it just <laughs> in one of your articles I was reading when it was talking about the no true Scotsman fallacy. And I was like, that's a classic example of if somebody's argument doesn't suit my belief system, then uh, their argument doesn't count. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's it. You're just just dispensing with criticism, basically. It's 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 like, um, and this is again a, a modern problem: is that is that people aren't willing to, to to to. We don't know how to take criticism on board, you know. And and but this is why I'm of the opinion that being pragmatic, having having pragmatic ideal, and tinkering, and being willing to to toss away because people learn best on their own, right? And and willing to toss away things that you were wrong about. Um, having that willingness and perhaps having a small circle of friends you can bounce ideas off not random people on twitter you won't listen to them you know um, because every everything's sort of geared towards hostility but have a group of people you know to be intellectually honest and have them bounce your to bounce your ideas off so if you've come up with something that doesn't perhaps work you know you can go no i don't think this you know what do you think do you think this is what juice is worth the squeeze you know, and they can be, they can give you an honest response. You know, the other, you just got to risk not building an echo chamber. But what happens is a lot of these guys who, who perhaps, um, you know, perhaps aren't being fully honest about their ideas do build echo chambers because it's comforting to know that someone at least agrees with what you're saying, you know, and, um, and that's a natural proclivity that we just got to be, be, uh, you know, which is why, you know, 
some of Stephen Jones's stuff, for instance, has me scratching my head and I could easily just go, well, I'm going to unfollow him. I can't bother to, to, to think about what it is he's trying to do. On the other hand, you've got other strength coaches, you know, uh, Alan Bishop's a good example who uses a lot of polyquin methods, very meat and potatoes, strength and conditioning approach. And I follow a lot of old school powerlifters. Like I was following a program by James Smith for a while, guys like that who, who implement West side methods, you know, so I try and, you know, balance the, the curmudgeonly old school sort of meat and potatoes SNC guys with some of the more avant-garde thinkers, you know, and, and try and see what, you know, comes out. And sometimes, you know, it does sit uncomfortably with you, but you've got to just bear that out, you know, um, because I guess what it suggests is, is there maybe something I'm not doing right? And you've got to be able to handle that information. And I think that's where a lot of people come unstuck is because they can't bear to, to the idea that perhaps they may be missing something here or they're not doing something right. You know, um, what you end up doing is, I guess, creating a, a, a feed that just basically comforts you, which is which is something you can't do. You know, which is why I follow sometimes people that annoy me, um, because occasionally there's something they might be saying that uh, that could be true. You know, I think it's the old um, I think it was a Jordan Peterson quote, something along the lines of, of, of uh, you know, an enemy, at least be honest, whereas a friend will, might well lie to your face. You know, and, and yeah, there are guys that annoy the hell out of me um, that I do follow, but occasionally there might be something in what they're saying that I could glean something from, or at least bolster my own arguments against what they're saying. That's exactly what I was just thinking of. Um, a friend of mine who's, um, for me, a very high level boxing coach um, and has worked with some high level people, but doubts his own ability. And he's talking about setting up a YouTube channel or a podcast. And he's like, what if people don't agree with what I'm putting out there? And I said, well, that's going to do two things. Either one, it'll teach you something. You'll be like, oh, actually, they've they've got something that I've got not got. I like the sound of that. Or two, you'll be like, no, I disagree with them. That further strengthens what I believe in. Um, just cycling back to a question I had earlier. So with how important the strength metrics and the power metrics are for golf, then um, you wrote in one of your articles about should we just turn to powerlifting then um so my question is what should for example golf athletes mma athletes take from powerlifting we mentioned a couple with the everyday maxims and stuff like that and what mm -hmm. should they avoid taking from powerlifting so obviously the biggest thing is 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 um powerlifting to some extent has has is, is lindy right so it has some stuff that, that, that has worked for a long time and will continue to work. We know that deadlifting, squatting, and bench pressing are useful. However, not everyone is made to is made to deadlift, squat, or bench press. So what you need to do as a coach is be able to serve up derivations of those movements that work for the individual in front of you. So for instance, um, you, know, you might have an athlete who, for whatever reason, cannot back squat but they might be able to do a derivation of a back squat. Can they front squat? Can they search a squat? Can they safety bar squat? They're still performing a squat pattern, but it's not, um, you know, they're not constrained by the notion of, of the strength sport. And this is a big thing I talk about is that a lot of people, when I started posting like the super maximal hand supported squat and the super maximal hand supported split squat, people from, from strict conventional lifting sort of disciplines were like, that's cheating. It's like at the end of the day, we're not competing in the hand supported split squat. I'm trying to apply stimulus to that individual that then positively transfers to, to the sport. 
just because you feel that somebody is doing a hand-supported squat or a hand-supported split squat is cheating. At the end of the day, what I'm trying to do is apply systemic stress to the individual to elicit adaptation. They're not going to be competing in hand-supported split squat against anybody. You've got to get out of your head that the, the, the idea is maximum load lifted on, on three very specific lifts. That's three specific expressions of strength. Um, you can't be hung up on, on them being the be all and end all, you know, and don't get me wrong. I've got guys who hand support split squat and all can also, you know, double body squat, double body weight, you know, so they, they can cover those two bases. The two things do, do have a relationship, but it's just getting, you know, divorcing yourself from the strictures of strength sports is the biggest thing for a lot of these guys, particularly guys who've moved into strength and conditioning and have a powerlifting background. They have to, learn to to let go particularly same thing for, for olympic weightlifting not everybody else is going to be able to olympic weightlift you know you've got guys who are die hard my athletes you know power clean they snatch they power snatch and you know however we can build powerful athletes without those lifts you know in the uk we're particularly guilty of hanging out on the olympic lifts because of the uk sda because they're their obsession with um with the olympic lifts um as part of their their their, their approach you know you can do just as good a work with with squat jumps or trap bar jumps in terms of elicit power gain, power gains in the low body. We've got the evidence to suggest that, um, and it's just yeah, just not being so so doggishly tied to very specific expressions of strength, and learning to to embrace other expressions of strength. Um, because at the end of the day, total force production, um, however you measure it, we can still step everybody up onto a mid thigh pull or onto a to a squat force platform test, and as long as those numbers are budging, however you're doing that. That's all that matters, right? Yeah, and that's why I particularly like your work and Stefan's work in the sense of, I see some of these super maximally centrics with someone like a golf athlete, or I see Stefan doing highly specific work with cricket, uh, young cricketers especially, and it perks my interest because I think, oh, are you going too much down a rabbit hole or is there something I'm missing that I don't understand? And that's what I particularly mm. enjoy. Um, whereas again, no disrespect to Joel Seedman, but sometimes I'll see stuff and I'll be like, I don't even understand how you got into that quote unquote rabbit hole. Um, and that's why I particularly enjoy uh, your content. And that's why I particularly enjoy diving deeper into it um, today. Um, and just in uh, wrapping up, so uh, four questions left. Uh, if you had one key take home for the listeners, what would that take home be? Um, I guess, you know, if, if, if you're a strength and conditioning coach and you're listening, I'll speak to strength and conditioning coaches, it's easier for me. Um, just just be willing to, to to perhaps get beyond things like sets and reps and exercises and start thinking about thinking, if that makes sense. So look at models of, of, of operating in the world. Um, two that work particularly well for me are have, you know, look into what the pragmatism as a the pragmatic ideal, because as a strength coach, that'll serve you awfully well. Um, you know, the, the, the fact that you test your ideas you measure your outcomes objectively um, and you deal with the situation that's first and foremost in front of you and send, instead of perhaps trying to honor some um, long-term plan, um, you know, because taking a bottoms up approach, particularly working with athletes, particularly working with young athletes um, will serve you better than trying to hit certain milestones or, or, or lofty goals. You know, you have to deal with the situation in front of you. And, and I think this is, speaks partly to sports science education, I guess, is that, that there's so much lip service towards, you know, macro and long term, long forms of, of periodized programming and planning that 
when you're actually feet on the ground in the gym, face to face with the athletes, the situation can devolve uh, or evolve rapidly. And a lot of people forget that. Um, and then just the other thing is, is you know, um, I see a lot of young guys, you know, quite burnt out with, especially at the moment and with the lack of sort of purpose in terms of where they're trying to get to. Um, and we get a lot of young guys in and it's like, well, what do you, what do you, you know, want to be a strength coach? It's okay. Well, what does that look like? What do you, what's, what's, what's your two, three, four, five year plan? What are you thinking going ahead? And just having a, a robustness um, that, that, you know, it's not going to be a completely linear improvement in terms of your career trajectory. You're going to have to eat, eat shit for a little while and, and just get used to that. Cause a lot of guys I know who come out of, uh, you know, they, they do a master's or whatever, and they think that they'll be able to walk into an SNC job. It's not that easy. I came up in a time where there were barely any SNC jobs and there still aren't that many at all. And it's, uh, that would be my, my, my advice is just, just, you know, if you really want to do this, if you really, really want to be an SNC coach, it's going to suck, especially for the first 10 years. You know, um, it's going to take a while, you know, because nobody's going to roll over and let you in. You want a job with a premiership? They're not going to swing their doors open to you. You've got, you know, two, 300 other people looking for the same job, you know, um, which is part of the reason why I guess I did what I did is because I'm not particularly big on authority. I don't like being told what to do. So working for myself works ideally uh, and then have the athletes come to me instead of it being the other way around. So, yeah. Um, I know I got off, to, off to on a tangent again, but uh, no, that's, yeah. that's the nature of my podcast. Don't worry about it. Yeah, um, that's okay. And uh, you're welcome to use Joel Seaman as an answer for this one. But uh, if you could observe, <laughs> if you could observe one coach working with their athletes, who would you choose to observe and spend time with, and why? Oh, that's a good question. Um, let me think. So, uh, I, I guess, I guess I'd like to get a look at the approach they take at the UFC PI. So. You know, I see some bits and pieces and, and I'm not able to build a whole picture. Their manual, the manual they put out is really good. So I like, guess I'd like to spend a week or two weeks at the, at the UFCPI and see, see their approach in action from, from everything from assessment to, to how they actually implement interventions and then how they go about sort of doing with that stuff. Because they, they, may, they in my opinion, represent the very sort of high end of, of MMA S&C interventions, you know, as a, as a gold standard in my mind. But that in terms of, of, of intervention, they're not giving us an awful lot of information. So I'm there trying to sort of pick up the pieces and wonder what it is they're, they're, they're actually doing. Um, yeah, that would probably be my, 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 my biggest thing of interest for that would be to, to take a good look at the UFCPR. I'm sure if I were to ask Duncan French if I can you know, come visit, they're probably more than happy to let me. Yeah, Duncan's a good guy. Um, and I'm intrigued where you're going to go with this, um, but just one recommended resource, again, book, podcast, app, gym equipment, whatever. Okay, uh, so I've got, can, I do, can I say two? Yeah, crack on. Yeah, obviously, Simply Faster. Um, the guy who runs it, uh, one of the guys who runs it, Carl Valley, um, you know, it, it took a real chance on me as, you know, a few years ago, and, and I started writing content for them. And um you know, he's given me opportunity to get my message out to the to the S&C world, which has helped with my level of exposure, which is which is awfully good. Um, you know, and they're, they're, there's lots of different coaches writing for them. So you get a lot of diversification. It's not like you're 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 getting uh, a monoculture, which is which is important. I think that's really important that you're not getting a particular sort of monoculture when it comes to, to, to dealing with S&C problems. And there's a, you know, a real diversity of, of authors writing for, for them. The other thing would be with the, the one S&C book, I'm not sure if it's by me or around me. Um, I normally have it on hand, but uh, it doesn't seem to. It doesn't seem to be next to me. Would be oh no, here it is. 
is uh, is handy sitting next to your bookshop is uh, Miladin Jovanovic's book, uh, you yeah, know, the Strength Training uh, Manual. And, you know, this guy is a next level thinker when it comes to S&C. And, you know, people pay lip service to, to super training and, and uh, you know, Bomper and, and uh, you know, Zetorski, all great books, stuff like that. But nobody's written a really compelling S&C book for me, you know, in a long time. And, you know, Maladen's book, uh, you know, Strength Training Manual, The Agile Periodization Approach is probably one of the best um, S&C books there is. And it's not because it's just there's a lot of sets and reps at the back, which is terrific. But the first part deals with um, mental models and how to tackle problems, things like, uh, you know, heuristics, waves, waves, ways of thinking, you know, the, 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 the establishing sort of meaning in your, in your training approach and things like that that people don't talk about. Whereas normally, you know, everything starts with an anatomy and physiology section, right? You can you open up pretty much any S&C book and I can, uh, you know, chapter one is, is uh, you know, uh, anatomy and physiology. Whereas, um, you know, Milan's book opens up, I believe, um, and he talks about precision versus significance, uh, you know, and large and small world thinking, which is completely different, you know, and, and a lot of, uh, I guess, you know the, the 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 kickback in this book is that he rails a little bit against this the 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 scientism that's very present in snc at the moment is that is that um we perhaps don't pay enough respect to things like pragmatism to things like um you know you know real world or you know in the trenches approaches to training because everything puts science uh, as an ideal and don't get me wrong science is a tool for explaining how things work but when it becomes you know a meaning of you know a meaning of uh, belief of how we approach solving our problems we become unstuck because we forget at the end of the day the business of strength and conditioning or coaching is still serving people and people are complicated you know we can't reduce people down to to mere numbers and i think that's that's why i like this book and i'm, I'm des brains uh drawing a blank here but i think it's kind of whose <laughs> quote it is but it's something like uh not everything that is measured matters and not everything that does matter can be measured and i think that's there you uh, go that's kind of what springs yeah. to mind listening to you say about that there um and uh finally how can people reach out to you if they've got any uh questions based on what they've heard sure so uh i'm on instagram at powering through um and you can reach me on twitter at ws wayland um those are probably the two best places uh to reach me Awesome. And uh, I'll put everything that we've mentioned in the show notes. So the big hits manual, the hinge manual when it comes out, um, mm -hmm. the simply faster stuff can't recommend enough. I mean, I dug through a load of those articles in, uh, in preparation for this chat, which is great to actually have some context heading into it. Cause as we said, with certain people, you just can't find out the decision-making process that led to the thoughts that you see in the snapshots on social media. Um, but yeah, it's been uh, awesome to chat, Will, and thank you very much for giving no us so much of your time. That's all right. No problem. Thank you for listening to episode 46 of the Platform to Perform podcast with today's guest, Will Wayland, and myself, as always, Todd Davidson. If you've enjoyed the podcast, I'd appreciate it if you would leave us a review via your preferred podcast platform and share this with a coach or athlete that you feel would benefit from listening. If you'd like to go one better than that, then you can head over to www.patreon.com forward slash Todd Davidson P2P Coaching. 
In exchange for subscribing to my Patreon and supporting the podcast, you'll receive exclusive access to the educational strength and conditioning content that is available only via this platform, as well as all the programs that I've created and my ever-growing movement library. Thank you very much for your support, and I'll catch you again in the next episode.